Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Good afternoon and uh, welcome everyone to this uh, event on uh, the Department for Education and whether it can respond to post-pandemic challenges. Uh, I'm Sam Friedman, I'm a senior fellow at the Institute for Government and thanks very much for joining us for this event. It's been kindly supported by EDPOL and the Foundation for Education Development. Uh, I think we can all agree the Department for Education has had a difficult pandemic by any, any stretch. Uh, we've had two years in which schools have been closed and reopened with little warning. Uh, many pupils have had to adapt to remote learning. Uh, the uh, department has struggled with a whole range of issues from re replacing cancelled exams, which we saw again on the front page of the Sunday Times yesterday, uh, distributing IT equipment, arguing with Marcus Rashford about food. Um, I'd recommend reading Nick Timmins' report for this shoot for, uh, of government for the full sort of details uh, of, of the pandemic response. Uh, the department now faces a, a fresh set of challenges from ensuring that uh, pupils catch up on the lost learning from the pandemic, dealing with the fallout of structural reforms that now go back uh, over a decade, uh, reducing the gap in attainment between rich and poor, which has now unfortunately just started widening, widening again, having reduced um, uh, for a while. Um, and it does so in a decade in which the, de the after a decade in which the department's role has, has, has quite fundamentally changed, uh, following changes to higher education finance, the sort of partial conversion of schools to academies, repeated reforms to further education and skills. Um, and and, and it's, it, it's that that means it's a sort of good opportunity to explore whether the department now has the capacity to meet all of these challenges. Uh, and we're also, uh, I think if we we're just talking about capacity, it might be quite a short, uh, short discussion. So we're also gonna be looking at, at solutions as well. Um, I'm delighted to be, to be joined by a sort of fantastic panel uh, who, who have a huge amount of experience on the topic in uh, question. Um, firstly, we have uh, uh, Justin Greening, the founder of the Social Mobility Pledge Campaign and a former Secretary of State at the Department for Education. Uh, we have Jonathan Slater, a member of the Institute of Government Board and a former Permanent Secretary at the Department for Education between 2016 and 2020. He overlapped uh, with Justine. Uh, we have Anne Longfield, Chair of the Commission on Young Lives and the former Children's Commissioner uh, and Rachel Sylvester, who's political columnist at The Times and chair of The Times Education Commission. Uh, how we're going to do this is I'm going to ask an opening question to each panellist, um, and then I will follow up with a few more questions to the panel, depending on how the discussion goes, before coming to questions from the audience. Um, and uh, we'll run the event for, for an hour and we'll finish, we'll finish promptly at 1.30. Um, there are three brief housekeeping things to announce before before we get into the into the questions. Um, uh, firstly, um, please send in the questions as early as you as you like. Um, if you can, please say give your name uh, and your institution. It's always helpful to know where questions are coming from, but you can post anonymously if you like. You can put your questions on the panel on the right of your screen. We'll be live tweeting the event from IFG events uh, using the hashtag IFG education. So please do follow and tweet along. I'm tempted to try and tweet and share at the same time, but I think I fear that's beyond my multitasking abilities. Um, and we will also have a video and sound recording on our website within 24 hours. Um, so if you want to share it, you will be able to. 
And um, before we get into the questions, I'm going to hand over to Patrick from Edpol, uh, who are sponsoring the event, just to give us a few uh, opening thoughts and remarks. Thanks very much, Sam. Edpol is a research project focused on long-term planning and use of evidence in education policy, and we work with co-sponsor Fed Education. Thinking of the question today, can the Department for Education respond to post-pandemic challenges? Well, there are undoubtedly many challenges, and after two years of local empowerment and suspension of national assessment, perhaps we are at a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to tackle deep-rooted problems. Nevertheless, nevertheless, shouldn't we also consider how we go about trying to solve problems and reach our intended goals? To avoid repeating past mistakes, shouldn't we consider how we structure and govern policymaking itself? So support for today's panel discussion originated in a series of interviews run by Ed Pohl and Public First entitled From the Office of Secretary of State, Reflections on the Policymaking Process. Overwhelmingly, the nine education secretaries found making good policy extremely challenging. All made important progress, but all seemed frustrated that they didn't have enough time and many initiatives didn't work out as they had hoped. Secretary of State's complained about being locked in short-term policy-making cycles, often driven by Treasury requirements. They said there aren't enough hours in the day. Policy-making infrastructure is weak. Evidence is not available to support decision-making. Professional input is ad hoc. And the civil service has, and I quote, strengths, but not strengths in depths. Adding to these difficulties, we should acknowledge that education policy is extremely complex. It's not possible to engage silver bullets or policy levers are interdependent and therefore system coherence is extremely hard to achieve. So as a consequence, government's initiatives are littered with consequences which weren't intended and policy churn is damaging to school. So considering all this, both Ed Paul and Fed would argue that to address deep rooted issues, the structures of policymaking should also be considered. And this requires, for example, measures of devolution. The new white paper is moving this, this direction, but might we go further? We could also consider greater delegation to specialist authorities, harnessing national and international experience and evidence. In some of the most difficult areas, even consider building cross-party agreement. Crucially, care as the policymaking need long-term planning. And as the Right Honourable Justin Greening has argued before, we also need long-term investment appraisal. This does not mean taking the politics out of education policy, but we could establish a better balance between experts, evidence and ideology. Could we also create a better balance between investment now and returns for society later? And returning to where we start our discussion today, could new structures of governance create the additional capacity that's currently lacking in the DfE. So with those thoughts, back to you, Sam. Thanks very much, uh, Patrick. And I would uh, strongly recommend having a look at that report um, of interviews from, the, from Secretaries of State. Uh, it's on my Twitter if you, uh, if you want to have a look uh, later on. A really, really interesting, um, thought-provoking uh, piece. Um, so I'm going to uh, sort of kick off with uh, a question to Jonathan. Um, you were 
permanent secretary uh, and before that you were a local authority director of education how do you think academization has changed the role of the department and do you think it's been for the better so uh, 20 years ago as you say i was a director of education islington council and i thought my job was quite tricky uh, i had to oversee one way or another about 100 schools uh, the question for me was you know in each case was the head teacher doing fine uh, if there was a problem were the governors on top of it um, if they weren't um, you know how was I going to step in to make sure that things uh, were back on track uh, I, I had to make sure the right level of funding went to each of these hundred schools taking into account the distinction between those that were new or those that were old those that served children who needed more help than others getting that right balance of funding seemed to me you know quite quite a tricky thing to get right but of course if I had had the power of um, to, to foretell the future uh, and look ahead 15 years uh, to when I was working for Justine in 2016 I realized just how easy uh, clearly my job had been at Islington uh, because now um, uh, in 2016 I was uh, helping Justine to oversee thousands and thousands and thousands of schools uh, either operating individually or in, or in small groups. If any of these schools fail their Ofsted inspection, suddenly it turned out to be our job uh, for, uh, to work out what to do, who should run each of these schools. Uh, that became our, our question. Uh, um, we had to work on how to allocate funding fairly between over 20,000 schools. So uh, goodness me, uh, the Department for Education job has changed. Those sorts of tasks managed previously at local level and now all managed at central government level. And so um, if you were to track the number of people employed by the Department of Education over the last 20 years, you won't be surprised to hear that there are thousands and thousands more staff working in the department than there were when I was at Islington. As to whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, whether it's gotten better or worse, depends on your view of the balance between uh, uh, national and locally elected politicians. I mean, that's the crucial difference. Um, so if when I think about uh, my own experience of this, um, the minister deciding, the politician deciding, let's take a sort of prosaic question, which schools get a boiler um, if there's not, an, if the heating isn't working properly. Now that is a political decision. It's a resource allocation decision. 20 years ago, it would have been taken by the uh, chair of the education committee at Islington. Now, now it's taken by the minister responsible for schools um, in sanctuary buildings. Uh, so in my time, first of all, by John Nash, then by Theodore Agnew. Intriguingly, uh, neither ever elected to any position. Um, as to whether that's a sort of good thing or a bad thing, as I say, it depends on your view as to who you think is best placed to make those resource decisions. Do you want them taken? A national level or do you want to take them at local level? Um, there is of course a politician who has been who was elected in the department working for Justine, uh, Nick Gibb, uh, extremely influential minister for you know 10 years. Whatever you think of uh, Nick's views about you know the best way of teaching reading or what subjects um, should be best be taught at the age of 16, there does seem to be a question in my mind in, in this balance between national and local as to how uh, it is really whether it makes sense to give one person quite so much power over what children learn in school so you could do it either way 
you know, there is an important role for politicians in overseeing an education system. It's public money that's being spent. But it, the consequence of academization is that it does concentrate political power very much in the hands of a very small number of people in Westminster, supported by an increasing number of civil servants uh, too. And for my, myself, uh, I, I think it's more centralised than it should be. Thanks, uh, Jonathan. Um, an interesting one, which I'm sure we're going to come back to over the course of the hour. Um, I'm going to go to Anne next. You were Children's Commissioner for, for five years, and before that you spent some time, I think, in the in the Prime Minister's Strategy Unit. Um, so you, you've sort of seen the department operating in, in a sort of number of guises over, over a period of time. Uh, do you think the department has an institutional memory? Does, does the department learn from doing things wrong uh, or does it or does it go around in circles? Um, I was, I was going to say or even doing things well. So we're going back another 20 years now to my time in the um, Strat unit. And I guess uh, from the um, time I was Children's Commissioner, the biggest thing that hits you in terms of leadership and in terms of um, uh, you know, institutional memories. There were so many um, politicians in those seats over that time. Um, in the, that time, there were actually five secretaries of states, including Justine here. Um, and I lost count of how many children's ministers there were. I think there were six, um, uh, but some were going quite rapidly through at some point. And it's difficult to imagine how on earth anyone could have a long-term focus um, uh, with that being the case. There are some really noticeable um, exceptions. Uh, you speak to Tim Lawton, you speak to Edward Timson, Justine, um, and indeed Nick Gibb, and uh, you know clearly this is bigger than one role. It's a life work and there's a detailed discussion about what was intended, how it happened, what, what went wrong, what went right, but I don't think that in any way permeates and of course that I think was exposed in terms of um, the uh, difficulties and the cracks during the pandemic. So during the pandemic I think uh, a great success moment was when schools remained open for vulnerable children, um, less so successful when none came. Uh, only 2% actually came in. Um, uh, of the kind of, you know, great failures for me was um, schools being closed for so long, um, weeks and weeks and weeks um, uh, when I didn't feel and I was being told that didn't need to be uh, the case. And what I think we have now is this flashing kind of dashboard of red lights around all sorts of things that are a result of that from vulnerabilities to that widening divide um, and the like. So I just wanted I, I take when you took me back to the cabinet office, um, I thought, you know, there's five things that I'd like to remind uh, the DfE um, that actually would address some of the difficulties that I think that uh, they wish to address now or certainly need addressing now. The first was that actually um, they once ran a programme of rollout for family support in the most disadvantaged areas to the count of £1.7 billion a year, which was so kind of bold, it would even talk called the new frontier of the welfare state, short start children's centres, and that was came out of a children at risk review, which has many similarities to what my commission is looking at now, to be honest. 
Um, the second, and we've got Justine here, but you know, the intentions around social mobility for new places for two-year-olds, um, pupil premium were hard fought for, um, but in the distance of time, a lot of people I think forget that those, you know, they were intended to really um, drive change. Um, there's a lot of worries at the moment about children who aren't attending school, haven't come back, and also those that are getting involved in um, exploitation and being exploited and the like. Well, actually, the department used to run youth programmes and actually had loads of programmes which were about supporting kids on the edge of um, crime and care and all those things um, till they gave it away. Um, and um, uh, we have had a kind of uh, quite a meek um, approach, I'd say, to what we do with school buildings. But actually, there once was an extended school programme that actually opened school doors beyond the classroom, after school, before school and during school holidays. And finally, the fifth one, there used to be a joint poverty unit with the DWP, which would help work out the impact of policies on um, children and help at very least understand when they are hungry. So I think what it needs is purpose, a theory of change, the mechanisms to support that change and actually that boldness and relentlessness to make that happen. Thanks very much Anne. Uh, yes, definitely agree. Um, on the need for, for for that kind of theory of change. Um, Rachel, going to come to you next for the for the Times Education Commission. You've been sort of thinking about a lot of the bigger long term challenges uh, around education. Do you think the DfE uh, spends enough time thinking about these issues and has the capacity and ability to do so? Uh, short answer is no. Um, and it's not just about time, I don't think. It's also about mindset. Um, and I wouldn't just blame the Department for Education, actually. I'd also blame the Treasury and Downing Street and the whole of government. Um, on, particularly on education, coming to it as an outsider, if you like, what's sort of sh shocked me is how stuck in these kind of slightly um, sterile ideological debates the whole of education is. So it's knowledge be skills, it's private versus state, it's, um, you know, um, academic versus vocational. Uh, and there's an inability to somehow lift the eyes to the sort of bigger problems. And of course, that's completely understandable when you've, you, you know, you're in the midst of a pandemic, you're dealing with the immediate crisis and, and then the medium term challenges of how do we get exams back on um, track. But there is a sort of, it, there's a narrowness to the way in which it's thought about, as well as the amount of time that's put. Uh, and that, that's, that's very short sighted. So you take um, early years, which Anne, mentioned there's a the one of the figures that shocked me most is the the, the fact that the gap that exists by the age of 16 40 percent of that gap is there before children get to school at the age of five but because of the three-year spending rounds that the treasury impose because of the lack of a sort of clear vision from Downing Street there's an inability to have a kind of really strategic early years uh, intervention of the sort that did exist with short start that's going to actually do what the Prime Minister says he wants to do and level up the country. Um, and the other thing that struck me so much with the Commission is how, um, why this is a sort of really um, acute and relevant issue right now, that the world is changing at an astonishing rate, <laughs> whether that's climate change, whether that's AI, 
new jobs are being created all the time. Who knows what jobs the children that are now in primary school are going to be doing when they reach the workplace? And already there is this, to me, astonishing disconnect between education and employment that the employers feel completely dissatisfied with the education system, schools, colleges and universities. They, they don't trust the exam system. They don't tr believe that children are being taught the right thing. Um, we've done a lot of talking to businesses and surveys of businesses, um, and that's come across very strongly. Uh, and if anything, that's going to accelerate over the next five or 10 years, this sense of the changing workplace. And lots and lots of people have said to us that um, the ch education system is training children to be more robotic, more rote learning, more memory, uh, more of a sort of narrow definition of knowledge and education. Um, whereas the workplace is increasingly going to need children to be more human. You know, it's those the empathy, the creativity, all those skills that are going to be increasingly important. Um, that's also uh, there's also the, the sort of modern issues that um, the, the, the world is having to con confront, whether that's pandemics or whether that's climate change, migration. Those issues cut across the sort of traditional 19th century subjects that children are being taught in schools. So that's another way in which the system sort of hasn't caught up with the world as it is. Um, it's almost like we've got a sort of analogue education system in a digital world. Uh, and in terms of technology itself, you know, the department um, did manage to get laptops out to um, thousands of children at an astonishing rate, but there's still no sort of systemic um, policy for making sure that every child has a device, which is the pen and paper of the future, actually of the present. Um, so there's no policy for that. There's no strategic thought about what the um, rise of technology means. You've had incredible innovation very quickly setting up things like the Oak Academy, which with online classes, schools immediately managing to go quickly to online learning, but it's been piecemeal. And I don't think it's really, there hasn't been the space or the time to think through what it means for the curriculum, what it means for the assessment system. You don't feel that anyone in um, the Department for Education is really thinking ambitiously about that the long-term challenges or even the medium-term challenges. Um, understandably, really, but um, I was so struck. I went to see, uh, I went to Estonia to visit um, their education system and speak to their minister and the, some of their officials and visited a couple of schools. They have a 30-year strategy for education drawn up across with all, all party agreement, um, completely takes the politics out of it. It's based on the evidence. What does international best practice say? Uh, our children and our young people and the country and businesses need. Uh, so it isn't allowed to get into a kind of ideological football between false divides. Uh, and they have um, a very strategic curriculum based around what they call 21st century competences. Uh, businesses are, you know, they designed a system that is appropriate for business. And they've got, I think, the highest number of unicorns in either Europe or the world, they've got this astonishing um, sort of e-commerce uh, and um, innovation, digital innovation mindset. Uh, and they've also, they've integrated technology fully into the education system. So it's not just a computer science lesson tacked on to the, to the rest of the curriculum. They've got, you know, they learn 
mathematics or they learn spelling through programming a robot from the age of seven. It's a completely different way of thinking. So I think it's not just about more time on the long term challenges. It's about a different mindset. And I think that applies not only to the DfE, but also to the Treasury, which is stuck in this kind of three year round, um, particularly at the moment when you've got a chancellor who's got an eye on the job next door, number 10. Um, you've got this very sort of short termist approach um, driven ultimately by money. Um, and it, it's letting down um, children, it's letting down businesses, it's letting down parents, uh, and it's letting down the country. Thank, thanks, Rachel. Um, I, don't get me started on the Treasury, or we'll be here <laughs> uh, for, the, for the rest of the session on that. Justine may have some views on the Treasury as well. Um, uh, I'm going to come to, 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 to Justine now. Um, It'd be really good just to get an overview from you, I guess, of what you felt like the main barriers to doing your job effectively work and what, what the strengths of the department were as well. Um, well, I think I've, I felt that I was very clear in my mind what I wanted to achieve as Secretary of State for Education, and I saw education as one of the key planks of driving social mobility. I think I had a very clear idea of how we should start to do that and some key changes in an approach that would be more place-based, tailored um, education policy through um, opportunity areas. And interestingly, when you got to the pandemic, some of the places that were able to respond on the ground in more nuanced ways were opportunity areas because there were local networks there that could think actually the families that are the ones who are out of school and struggling are also the ones that probably need food support. And so you've got all of this innovation on the ground. So I think, I think from my perspective, I certainly had a very clear sense of what we were trying to achieve. I felt the department had a lot of very good people who were equally motivated and had a clear sense of purpose. I felt the fact that we had regional officers gave us a countrywide footprint that was actually extremely important if we were going to shift towards a place-based approach. Continuing on the department's strengths, I felt it could move at pace when we wanted it to. We were able to launch opportunity areas literally within 10 weeks of me arriving as Secretary of State. We were able to rebuild the Kensington Aldridge Academy that was a school that had to be physically closed down because of the Grenfell fire effectively within a term and that school was essentially open again in a slightly different site but fundamentally it was a place for those children to go back to in the September October time just months after that fire. So the department, I believe, is a department that can deliver. I think over, over time, if you move to a place-based approach on education increasingly, perhaps the skill sets in the department need to change because it will be more about managing projects on the ground and innovation will be happening at a different place in the system, perhaps to where it's traditionally done before. I, I think the things that held us back were really quite simple. Um, thank you. Uh, I think, so, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in, I'm just going to do a few questions. We've got a few questions coming in from the audience. Please do keep putting them in and we're, I'm going to come to that soon because I'm keen to get as many of those in. I did just want to come back. Uh, I wanted to come back to you, uh, Justine, on, on one of the points that, that, that Rachel raised around this long term 
um, uh, termism and how you get that into into the policy approach. I've, I've heard a lot over the years similar 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 statements. You know, we we there's other countries have this long term plan for education. They have ten year strategies. They get sort of party politics out of it. I, I felt that sort of it would be so hard to do that in our system. I'd love to get your perspective on sort of whether you think this sort of political possibility for that kind of approach is is, is there. It's a possibility. Um, I think the question is whether we want to take advantage of it in a system where it's been become progressively and deliberately more divisive. So politics has become about achieving success through undermining your opponent. It's not seen as anything other than a zero sum game. And I think unless there's a willingness to recognize that over time for people, this is a political system that is simply not delivering enough progress on the ground for people, that fundamentally is undermining trust in politics more broadly. Um, I literally was probably at a disadvantage as a Secretary of State for not picking fights with people in the system, the blob, as you might call it, um, in order to achieve my objectives. What I tried to do was build partnerships to build a consensus to allow debate on things we didn't agree with, but not to uh, not to prevent that, allow that to prevent us from moving forward where we did. So I think it's down to people, Sam, actually, and whether they are in politics to just have the debates or whether they're fundamentally in politics to improve outcomes for people. Because I think if you're in politics to improve outcomes for people, then you would behave differently and you would seek to build bridges instead of simply just finding division points and then exploiting them for your own personal political gain. Yeah, very, uh, there's a lot of, lot of, lot of um, uh, ways in which that in which that can be interpreted, given everything we're going through at the moment. I absolutely agree. Um, Jonathan, what's your perspective on this sort of question of, of, of how you sort of create longer term change, given the political constraints that, that Justine's talking about? Um, what did you feel you were able to do in terms of building something a bit more long term? Well, uh, as Justine says, in the end, um, in a political system, it's up to the politicians as to whether they want to take a long term approach or not. Um, one of the differences between Estonia um, and the UK is that Estonia is always run by a coalition government. I mean, it's true, of course, of most countries across Europe uh, with systems of proportional representation, as obviously Rachel and others know, you get coalitions. If you get coalitions, then you don't you're not likely to get the um, uh, the shifting that you do in the UK political system. Of course, there was a referendum on whether we wanted to introduce PRP years ago, and the answer was no. So, so there are, you know, there are, there are pros and cons uh, of that. Certainly, as a, a civil servant, obviously, it would be a great deal more straightforward for us um, if we were working to more consistent political direction. Um, uh, but you know, this is a, a broader debate, um, isn't it, than uh, education? There are occasions, of course, even in this country where politicians of different political parties have chosen to take a longer term approach. As Justin says, you can do it if you want to do it. Um, uh, it was obvious that pensions were coming completely unaffordable. And so Adair Turner was asked to come up with a solution to that. Um, uh, similarly, closer to home, uh, this academic technical thing that Rachel talked about, um, there was a sort of an attempt for a sort of cross party approach, and it was at the Riches Review set up over 10 years ago. Uh, eventually, T levels were the product of that. So, typically, as with both of those examples, if politicians agree, 
to take something out of um, you know, the, 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 a particular department today and give it to a cross-party um, you know, independent commission to look at, uh, as happened with both technical education and pensions, then uh, the system can respond accordingly. Um, and, and would respond accordingly. I was struck by Anne's list of things which, um, uh, in response to your question about institutional memory, there are no shortages of civil servants in the Department of Education who know a lot about Sure Start, Pupil Premium, Youth Programmes and School Building Programmes, as Anne knows full well, who would be absolutely, you know, who'd be very happy uh, to get on with implementing those programmes um, if that was the political direction they were Given. So I guess you're raising a, big, a bigger political question here, aren't you, about the extent to which there was a wish or otherwise for people to work together on those issues. Thanks, Jonathan. I'm going to I'm going to start bringing in some questions from the uh, from the audience now. We've got some really good ones up already and do please keep sending them in. Um, I'm going to start with one uh, for Anne, but panelists, if you do want to come in, just signal to me that, that you'd like to sort of say something about it as well. Um, but I'll start with Anne on this one. There's a, a, a criticism I've heard a lot that the and this is from Louise Smith at the LGA. Uh, that uh, since the Department for Children, Schools and Families became the Department for Education, uh, the department's focus has been on schools to the detriment of, of social care and other aspects of this wider children's uh, arena. Um, do you think that's a fair criticism? Uh, and, and, and if you do, how would you seek to rebalance it? Yeah, and um, I mean, I do think that much of this comes back to what you deem to be about education, what you do deem to be um, about children's lives. And uh, the move was um, pretty instant towards education and education and the institution of schools, given everything Jonathan talked about in terms of the complexity of that. Now, if I had to guess, I would have thought it would take up 90 percent plus of the thinking time um, and we know you know we know and as Rachel pointed out the strategic thinking time is pretty slim anyway so yes I'm of the opinion that it needs to be in the round I think that we need to look at childhoods I think it would be you know it, I think it's pretty mad to have policy around families somewhere else and I know that that's more about the structure of government than the need for it this is back to my you know, know what you're trying to do, work out how you can best do it, and then put the architecture around how you best do it. I mean, I think none of this is going to be fixed. We all know none of this is going to be fixed in five years. So the short-term agenda is just a hiding to nothing. It's never going to get there. We have a 10-year health plan. Why on earth isn't it at least 10 years? But the thought of having longer is something which I think parents throughout the land would actually you know, welcome and embrace. And I understand the comments about, um, you know, this is about uh, something that politicians need to sign up to as a way of working. But I think it's bigger than that. You know, we do all vote. Uh, business does have a say. And I think that, you know, if we are asking of our um, uh, political parties that they do come back with longer term plans with meaning and with collaboration. I mean, I know that's quite a tricky thing on a doorstep to get over to a politician when they knock, but you know, that sense actually we want more because this is one of the most pre precious assets that, you know, we can offer kids, but it gets squandered and squandered for the wrong reasons too often. Uh, Rachel, you wanted to come in, I think, on, on this point and just unmute. Yep, thanks. Yeah, it was just to say that actually going around and visiting schools, they are doing all that other stuff. You know, they are. I went to a primary school 
recently where they you know they've got washing machines in the school because the parents can't afford uh that kind of equipment the schools during the pandemic were making meals and giving them out to children uh you know i went to another school where they've got benefit officers immigration officers they even have um you know people who go in the ambulance if a child gets when this in a very high crime area when the children get stabbed they go with them to the hospital there's a sort of whole child approach that schools are doing because they know that without that the uh, education isn't the isn't what it isn't the full picture the problem is they're slightly doing it with one hand tied behind their back because the system support isn't there they haven't got the money often for those things so often it's being done through philanthropy they're raising money or the goodwill of uh, parents or staff and donations. Um, so there is a, I don't think it matters what you call the department, but I think you do have to acknowledge that uh, you can't do, education isn't just what happens in the classroom. Thanks, thanks Rachel. I was actually, I was, I was um, in the room when they made the decision, we made the decision to change the name of the department and uh, the civil servants were surprisingly keen on it actually, I think the, the ones we were talking to anyway, because they sort of wanted that focus, but it, but I but I, I definitely, it's not about the name, it's about the, the way you, um, the way you behave. Um, there's, there's quite a popular request here for Justine to repeat uh, something she got to, she, you said the things that held the department back and then you dropped out at that exact moment apparently. So um, <laughs> what, what is it that held the department back? You have people on tenterhooks. Uh, I was basically saying what held the department back was whether number 10 had enough ambition and whether number 11 was willing to put in place long-term resourcing. Simple as that. Uh, I think a lot of the ingredients of success are in the department. The question is, is it going to be unleashed to get on doing what it wants to do? And that means wider government having a clear purpose, which is why levelling up really matters, because it does give you a platform to say education is at the heart of how you level up. It does really, for the first time, put it at the centre. I think what we all want to see now is how that translates to a much more systematic approach, which is what all of us are saying we want, that is cross-cutting and can allow very different places, very different education challenges to tailor that approach on the ground in an era, as Jonathan says, where actually, for various reasons, we've seen a centralisation of education policy at a time actually now when we understand that one size doesn't fit all. Thanks. I mean, my, actually, my... there's another point I'd like to make. So I think the other the other challenge is that too often we work out the money and then we work out what we can do with it. And so you end up with policies that are about half closing a gap. Well, <laughs> that's half a policy, clearly. <laughs> If you're going to achieve equality of opportunity, you need to close gaps full stop. And it's that that should then translate across to the investment plan. So that would have made an argument, if you were me, for working out your levelling up white paper strategy. And then the Chancellor comes out with his comprehensive spending review. And by the way, that's a spending review that certainly for schools should stretch out to 2030 if you're going to have missions taking that long. So. It's about having all those bits of government lined up uh, with what you are trying to achieve in the department. Thank, thank you. And I, this, you might think this is a slightly unfair question, but it's something that really interests me around this sort of debate about money versus policy and, and, and the order in which things happen. Do you? How much do you think this is a sort of 
deeply embedded in the in the way the Treasury operates and works? And how much do you think it's to do with the individual who happens to be Chancellor at the time? It's probably a bit of both, but I mean, I'm a chartered accountant by training. All my time in industry prior being an MP was being a finance person in some very big organisations. I had never seen an organisation run like Treasury that looked after finance. So it was really around skill set, processes, systems. I've always called Treasury the great unreformed department. And that's the big challenge is, is it able to actually help and enable those wider government departments to succeed by taking you know sensible approaches on long-term business plans in relation to investing in the nation's biggest asset which is its people which is also something that Nadine Zahawi was saying last week launching his white paper you either believe talent spread evenly but opportunities not or you don't if you believe talent spread evenly then you have to also believe it's worth investing in a plan to make sure it's develop consistently wherever, wherever it is in the country. Absolutely. The, the big question in a sense is almost, why is it all of us know what the solutions are, but somehow government can't get itself into a situation where it can pursue them? And the bigger problem would be if nobody knew what the solutions were, we know what we need to do. The question is, how can government at the centre reform in order to have functioning decision making for the long term, setting aside the fact that we know politics is going to be short term because we have elections in a democracy quite often and that's a good thing. But the problem is we have to have strong processes across government to start unlocking the chance at least for long term decision making. I'm going to come to Jonathan on, on, on this point, but I just wanted to combine it with another question that I thought was a really interesting one. Um, so keep 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 in mind the sort of point around the Treasury, Jonathan, but also Helen Kenny, who's a national officer at the FDA, um, has asked uh, how difficult the panel it thinks, does the panel think it is at the moment for civil servants, particularly senior civil servants, to, to give robust, honest advice when they're under scrutiny from the media and they face the risk that politicians may blame them for failure? Blaming civil servants for failure. Sorry. I thought this would be an appropriate one for um, <laughs> So just picking up the previous comments first, um, it's interesting, Sam, I'll come back to you offline, um, that you heard civil servants uh, putting the case for Department of Education rather than children. In a way, it's not that surprising. If you organise things from the point of view of what's the most effective for government, um, you end up with um, a Department of Education, uh, a Department of Transport, uh, the basically whole day model since 1918. The interesting challenge is to turn it the other way around and what is in the best interests of the public as opposed to the officials and the politicians. And that's where you would get a, a demand of children, wouldn't you? Or a demand of the family. Uh, uh, and um, so whilst it might be more efficient and straightforward for civil servants, I think the bigger question, which is Anne's question or Rachel's question, is what what's the best way of organising things from the point of view of the people who this stuff is supposed to be for? In which case you would say um, uh, you, you'd organise it around the needs of children. Uh, as Rachel says, you know, you go to a school in a deprived community and what are the things that the teachers are really struggling with? The answer is the absence of social work. Um, and uh, a Department of Education is not best placed to fix that problem because in the end, the Secretary of State for Education is going to be in a bun fight with the Chancellor of the Exchequer as to uh, the money for employing teachers. And the advantage of a more localised system is that it's much easier 
in a localized system uh, to put the resources around the child and the classroom. I mean, it's not straightforward, but it's easy to do it. Um, as Justine said, there's no relationship whatever between the way the Treasury operates and the way that finance department would work in a company. They're just two completely different things. Uh, for people who've not worked inside this model before, think of it in a very straightforward way. You've got 20 Justines all asking for money for their thing, and you've got one Chancellor who's doing his or her best to say no. Uh, thinking, of the, thinking of themselves as the, as, as the, as the person who is uh, being pressed all the time for more money from individual departments. And that in the end is what um, drives um, the Treasury more than anything else. It sees itself as, as the only buffer uh, between unlimited spending um, uh, and control, rather than, as Justine says, what's the best way of achieving value for money, which is a more important question, but not really how the Treasury, I would say, is set up. Uh, as to um, uh, whether civil servants um, are um, are going to find it hard to say what they think. Um, there aren't many incentives on civil servants, of course there aren't, uh, to um, offer uh, advice that they think their Secretary of State isn't going to want. Uh, not many incentives on them at all, um, because they're fearful, obviously, that uh, the, the politician they're working for has got quite a bit of power over them. You know, the good news, uh, in, in my experience, is that nearly all of the ministers I've worked for have been very keen indeed that the civil servants say what they think um, and, and tell them so. I remember at early stage working with Justine and a civil servant produced a piece of advice for her which said you could do either X or Y and the message came back from Justine to the official was well which would you recommend and the civil servant said well it sort of depends on what you want uh, and so it, which sort of uh, proves uh, uh, what's behind the question from the FDA colleague even in a situation where the Secretary of State, in this particular case, Justine, specifically wanted to know what the civil servant thought, that civil servant thought was just too risky uh, to say, um, just thought it was a bit too risky because you never know. So, so that, is a, that is a problem with the system as a whole. Uh, but as I say, working with Justine, working with Damien too, I've worked for most of the politicians I work for, really wanted to know what we thought. Thank you, um, Jonathan. I, I'm just conscious that um, Justine needs to drop off a little early in, in about four minutes. So if we're in the middle of a question when you have to do that, I'm just going to say thank you now for, for your contribution. Um, we may be able to bring you in on another question uh, before then. Um, I'm going to go to a question. Um, I'm going to put this one to Rachel initially. Uh, this is from Anne West at the LSE. Um, do you think there's a case for all children to have access to all national curriculum subjects and programmes of study, perhaps up to up to even GCSE level? Uh, might some academy trusts or, or schools be disadvantaging, disadvantaging pupils by not giving them a, a sort of broad and balanced or equivalent curriculum uh, at the moment from what you've sort of seen and discussed on your commission? Um, I definitely think there's a need for a sort of broader definition of what is also included in the curriculum. So the sort of narrowing down, the EBAC has led to this narrowing down of what is valued and what is um, uh, assessed as, as valid um, on what, uh, which, what schools are, are um, basically assessed on um, in terms of their uh, 
how effective their education is. So I think there needs to be a broader definition of what is valued in the curriculum. So the creative subjects, James Dyson was so interesting when we spoke to him, the inventor, he said, you know, design and technology, that's dropped, I think it's 70%, something like that, since the introduction of the EBAC. But in his view, that is where you get your engineers, that's where the country gets its future entrepreneurs and inventors. And so the economic consequence of downgrading those kinds of subjects. So it's not sort of happy, clappy um, creativity and creative subjects in that way. It's a sort of a, a different view of what matters in education. So I think as broad as possible is good, uh, although schools will always say, where's the time? But I think you just have to, it's what you measure and what you value is so important and having a broader definition of what is valuable. Yeah, absolutely. We could have a whole other hour or several hours on that topic. Um, I think it's uh, absolutely critical um, and, a, and a sort of worthy of, of, of discussion in itself. Um, one of the one of the uh, popular questions we have is um, uh, uh, around um, from from Adam Steedman Thake, uh, uh, an AQA former former formerly of the of the DfE. Um, and I'm going to hand this one to Anne first, and, and others may want to, to, to come in on it. Um, so does the panel think that the department in, in the wider civil service has the right systems in place for developing skilled and effective workforce to deliver against um, these challenges? Um, uh, and in particular, the, the, the far stream, which is the main route for, for getting in talent, is, is very socially exclusive in terms of intake, perhaps doesn't best represent society. So how do we get more people in? How do we train them more effectively? So the, um, we're talking about the civil servants, civil service itself rather than um, children. I guess um, uh, the architecture of government is something which I think um, doesn't stand the test against the kind of people versus structures on any sense. Um, uh, you know, as Justine said, you know, it isn't set up about the outcomes, about uh, people's lives. People don't live in boxes. Um, and there's um, a real default, I think, towards um, the ease of institutions. Some of it's necessity because, of course, there's so much to do and, um, you know, it's such a broad span. But the institutions of our kind of daily life tend to win out over than individuals within that. So look, I think there are benefits and I've seen it in different times about getting people in. Um, possibly for short periods of time from um, across different sectors, drawing on business and drawing on the voluntary sector more. I think there is um, a lot more that can be done about giving real entrance to people from across difficult, uh, different parties and indeed um, across public life. Um, I think there is much that can be gained by having a much greater connection, however that might be, with those that those services are for. In my case, I talked a lot about how there could be greater knowledge of children's lives. It's very difficult sitting in a, an office in the middle of Whitehall talking about, you know, families, for instance, that are going hungry. That's not always the easiest thing. And it did seem to me and the Treasury were kind of, um, you know, quite high on the list of doing some of these things that actually, you know, I talked about children becoming data points and actually that kind of instinctive humanity, which I know has to be kind of, you know, has to be managed and guarded with these scale of decisions needs to have its place and needs to have a role in that need, almost needs to be the kind of check, the sense check 
What does this mean for real people? And if we look at what happened during the pandemic and some of the decisions there, not least about exams, um, actually, that's if that sense check had been applied, people wouldn't have done what they'd done, what they did at the time. And Justin, I think you wanted to come in on this question as well. Yes, thanks, Sam. I mean, obviously, government as an employer itself needs to walk the levelling up talk, and that means it needs to be looking at whether it really is representative of that wider country that it is designing, developing and implementing policy for. I think it's welcome that government is shifting roles, for example, into communities and places where perhaps there haven't been. Um, Oh, I think we've we've lost Justine in, in mid flow again. That diversity going oh. to be reflected in the in the, the the workforce, if you like, of the civil services of the future. So I think it's about understanding how all of these things ultimately tie together. If you have a more reflective and diverse civil service and dare I say parliament, I think you'll get more in tune, smart, systemic approaches on policy coming through on that as well. Thank you. I, I don't know if you have to go now. If you've got time, you're going to you're going to head off. off. Thank you very much for 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 being on the panel. I've just got time. If you wanted, I've, I've literally got two minutes. If you want to ask me a final question, I was. If you will, if there was one final question which I want to put to to the panel more generally, but I'll start with you because um, it relates to your levelling up comment. Um, will will the mission that was announced last week that of ninety seven percent ninety percent of primary school children achieving expected standard in reading, writing, and maths. Uh, create a narrow focus and reinforce some of the problems we've been talking about, or is it is it the right thing to do? I mean, that depends whether there's a proper game plan around how you achieve it. If you achieve it for the long term by working upstream in early years, etc., then maybe you'll have the wider picture. But ultimately, in and of itself, I think what we all want to see is what what what's the game plan for getting there, and for very different reasons and different young people who fail to get to those levels that we need what's the hypothesis about how you can have a multifaceted approach to enable all of them to make those those steps the final point for me is you know that's just the beginning of how you might achieve a leveled up britain you know the reality is it's not just about that it's about careers advice mentoring connections whole range of other things um but hey that's an important part of it too. Anyway, being great to be part of this and sorry I don't get to hear everyone else's reflections on, on that really important mission. Thank, thanks very much, Justine. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna come to Rachel just on, on the on this sort of point around the levelling up white paper and the sort of mission of of getting getting 90% of kids. It's about 65% at the moment for the record. Uh, what what did you what did you think when you saw that? Well, of course, it's the right thing to do. It's, that should be the bare minimum. Um, but it has to, I think it has to start before they get to school. As I was saying earlier, you know, 40% of the gap at 16 exists by the age of five. Um, and a really shocking number of children are, are behind their expected level of development by the end of the reception year. So you have to you have to start you have to deal with the parents as well as with the children especially in terms of reading we all know that it's reading to your child at night that's so important it's not just what they're learning at school so of course that's the right um a right priority it's necessary but it's not sufficient um would i'd say thanks thanks rachel um 
so many good questions here. I'm not going to have time to do them all. I think we might have time for for one or two more. Um, I've got I've got one from um, Adrian Prandtl at the NEU, who I'm going to give to Jonathan first. Um, how do you assess the department's relationship with sort of centre of government number ten? We've talked a bit about the treasurer already, cabinet office. Is DfE as influential as it should be? Is it a successful player in those cross Whitehall conversations? Um, and how how does the sort of different interaction between those bits of government help or hinder what we're talking about? Well, as as you've heard already. Um, uh, uh, it's a mistake uh, to think that any Secretary of State um, actually gets to decide much on their own. Um, they, they they need the money from the Treasury and they need uh, the slot on the grid in number 10 before they can announce anything at all. Uh, that's uh, how the system's been for the last 20 years or so. And so, as the question implies, the relationship between the Secretary of State, the Chancellor and the Prime Minister and his or her advisors is critical. You know, there are moments, aren't there, when prime ministers make it extremely clear that education is their top priority. Sometimes they even list it three times uh, to demonstrate just how much they mean it. Um, and then you've, um, you know, you, you've got a, a clear situation and you drive forwards. Uh, Sam, you worked for Michael Gove, who had a particular strategy for handling uh, David Cameron that he's written about. Uh, and that's a strategy that's quite different, but can work too. Um, basically, the, the department is able to work really well with the Treasury and number 10 if there is um, a political alignment and not if there isn't. If, if that political alignment doesn't exist, uh, then civil servants spend a lot of time, sort of wasted time really, um, involved in sort of endless negotiations. I mean, the number of meetings that I uh, was involved in to decide uh, what we were going to do by way of holiday arrangements and free food, you just wouldn't believe it. Um, so, uh, th but that's not nothing to do with the sort of um, the structures that, that that just whether you've got political alignment or not. Thanks very much. Yes, we had a number Well, Dominic Cummings had a number of techniques for dealing with number 10 as well, some of which have now come into the open. Um, I'm going to I'm not going to go for any more questions because I do want to end promptly. I, it's been it's been an absolutely fascinating discussion and um, loads more questions that I would love to ask this panel, but I am going to bring us to a close. Uh, for those uh, looking for, for more analysis, check out, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Nick Timmins' report on schools during the pandemic that he did for Institute for Government and also uh, the IFG's Whitehall monitor on how the whole of government fared during the pandemic. Um, I also mentioned earlier the report from uh, Ed Pohl, um, uh, on the Secretary of State interviews, which which is definitely worth having a look at and reading really interesting stuff. Um, I, I've also got a, a report out for the Institute uh, later this week um, on one of the big aspects that we sort of briefly touched on today, the sort of academization reforms, uh, what worked, what didn't and what should happen next in the upcoming white paper. So look out for that coming later this week. Um, but I will I will finish on that note. Thanks to everyone who's joined us today. Thank you for the brilliant questions and thanks to the four speakers for a brilliant discussion. Goodbye. Thank you for listening and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Bye.